Welcome back to Endless Vital Activity, conversations to inspire radical action. I'm David Johnston, founder of Accept and Proceed, and at AMP we believe the cross-pollination of minds and ideas is vital, and that we can't find solutions in isolation. Connection and collaboration are critical. So throughout this series, we will engage in wide-ranging conversations with radical thinkers, artists, scientists, and activists about the problems we have been given to solve. We are seeking new perspectives to reimagine our world. Today, I am honoured to be in conversation with storyteller and world builder Liam Young. Liam is a speculative architect and director who occupies the spaces between design, fiction, and futures. His focus is about moving beyond human-centered design and starting to think about the fact that we now share our lives with machines and autonomous systems. A truly radical individual, what I find so powerful about Liam's work is the way he harnesses the power of fiction as a mode and framework for building conversation around important ideas impacting humanity today. So there is so much to get into, Liam, but let's start at the beginning. What unites all of the different things that you do is the act of world building and thinking about our futures. What drew you to this work? So I guess I would define myself as a speculative architect. And and what that means is that I don't design buildings, but rather I tell stories about the global, urban and architectural implications of new technologies. And I began my life as, as a very traditional architect. I, I studied in Australia. Um, I moved into the star architect system. I worked for Zaha Hadid in London. But across time, I began to realize that the, the forces that were shaping cities that, that used to be the domain of architects, things like you know, large permanent infrastructure, public squares and spaces, buildings in cities, were really being marginalized in terms of you know, what was really defining urban experiences. Uh, the things that were shaping our lives were mobile technologies, access to the network, autonomous systems, AI governance. These were the things that traditionally fall outside of the domain of architects. So I started to look for ways that, that I could stay relevant as an architect and urbanist um, and telling stories about technology technologies that are arriving to us faster than our cultural capacity to understand what they mean is, uh, technologies I would define as before culture technologies, um, became really critical. You know, architecture is an inherently slow medium. So telling stories, making films, speculating about the implications of these technologies and putting these fictions about what they could do, presenting worlds that are shaped around them, uh, becomes a space to prototype what they can mean um, and allows us to get ahead of the technology curve. It allows us to really um, imagine what our futures might be as a means to start to think about the decisions that we're making today in the present moment. Your work really feels like a conversation starter, this this way of kind of instigating debate about the social and architectural and, and political consequences of those emerging biological and technological futures. Can you unpack some of the themes that you're focused on? These technologies are really shaping and, and fundamentally changing our lives, yet generally they're sold to us through particular media narratives. And the way technology comes into our world is, is, is based on um, return on investment. So a technology will come when it's when it's at a point that can be monetized, not uh, at a point when we know it's going to be valuable and change our lives. So what we try and do is is sort of use film, we use fiction as a site in the same way that an architect uses a piece of vacant land. We use film as a site in which to project and prototype what these technologies might mean. Um, so if you take something like uh, driverless cars, you know, we've done some work around that in a film called Where the City Can't See. And it's a film uh, made entirely using LiDAR scanners, the first film made, made using this laser scanning technology. And that's how driverless cars see and understand the world. They use these laser scanners to map space and to navigate. Um, and so much of the autonomous systems like drones, driverless cars, um, surveillance networks all use this, this scanning technology to map and understand space. So we're at a point where 
the dominant systems that are shaping our urban environments are no longer human. It's machine vision systems. So we've done a lot of work around what that actually means. If we're designing our spaces not for human occupation and for human eyes, but for the patterns of how machines understand space, that fundamentally changes what our role is as designers. So in that, in that, in that film, we were, it was set in a future Detroit. We were thinking about what happens in a city that's mapped within millimeter precision, where there is no spaces unseen by these systems, where are the sites of exception? Um, where are the, the warehouse raves? Where are the, the spaces where you can you know, have sex, listen to music, do drugs, like be human? Um, so the film follows the, the story of um, a group of young factory workers who, who by day work on the automated production lines, but by night go and party and dance. Um, and they end up in a partying in the gaps between how the machine sees. You know, these machine vision systems um, are, are not necessarily all-encompassing, that they, they have flaws and glitches and they have blind spots, and that becomes these new sites of exception. So we created camouflage clothing that they would wear that disguised their body from laser scanning systems. Um, we looked at how LiDAR scanning worked, which is based on line of sight. So you could create these sort of gaps in vision that become new kinds of spatial opportunities. Um, and these are sites that in plain sight with our human eyes don't exist. You can't see them. But when you see the world through the laser scanners, which is how we, we made the film, um, all of a sudden these spaces get revealed. So that's one of the themes we're interested in is, is, is moving beyond human-centered design and starting to think about the fact that we now share our lives with machine and autonomous systems. Um, that's one of the stories we're interested in. Um, we're also interested in like the radical shifts that are going to happen to our lifestyles um, based on uh, impending climate collapse and how we can start to look at a whole lot of systems around renewable energies, large-scale planetary infrastructure, carbon sequestration, things, systems that might um, play a role in regenerating our climate what does that mean for our cities and spaces and our lifestyles? Um, how do we again adapt and and reimagine our cultures in response to these um, to these new systems? Um, so you know, basically, we, we we engage with the technology of the moment. What is coming? What is here? What is of the zeitgeist that everyone is trying to engage with and talking about? And then. What kind of stories emerge in that context? How can we explore the cultural implications of these technologies? That's what we do. And obviously, you touched on this, but the technologies are advancing faster than sometimes the laws that govern them. In fact, quite often, we haven't got laws that can govern the types of technologies that we're developing. And indeed, we learned a lot about this through our work with um, data rights agency AWO, uh, who was founded by, by three incredible um, men, one of whom was actually um, cited as the, the guy that effectively was responsible for taking down Cambridge Analytica. Uh, called Ravi Naik, and and he told us a lot about the the realities of the the legal sector, you know, and and it's still kind of wig wearing, archaic, in fact, in the way that we actually process and think about just the it just it, it kind of implementing um, laws and things like that. So I'm really interested, Liam. Have, does that kind of come into your work at all? The way that laws can affect the the technologies that we are emerging. Yeah, exactly. It's impossible to separate technology from culture. So what we do is, is you know, take a given system and just play out its, its intended and unintended consequences. And that's not an act of prediction. You know, we're not trying to imagine um, and, and try and get it right in terms of you know, how these technologies are going to play out in our world and how they're going to change our cities. But rather, we're trying to play out multiple futures because that is what gives us um, a critical understanding about what these systems might mean. We, we, we project these futures not to fetishize the, the, the distant um, vision that we're imagining, but rather to, to travel to that place in order to come back to the place we first started, to come back to the present moment and understand it differently and understand the implications of the decisions that we might make. 
and then we can start to act accordingly. Um, because as you said, in, in like the legal framework, just as architecture um, does, it, it moves so slowly. Um, yet the advances in technology move so fast. You know, take something like file sharing. We're still in the middle of the Kim.com court case around mega upload. We still really haven't developed a legal framework to understand why me reading a book and liking it and giving it to you is sharing, but me watching a film and liking it and, and uh, sending you a file is piracy. Um, that court case is still ongoing. You know, this is, this is 30 years or so after Napster, um, yet we're still in court cases surrounding this stuff. Um, uh, or you take something like drone technologies. I can walk down the street and for $300, I can buy a 4K resolution camera drone and in about half an hour be an expert pilot. Yet we still have no idea about what happens if that drone falls out of the sky and lands on someone's head and kills them. Who's responsible? The coder that wrote the algorithm that failed, the battery supplier that wrote the battery that failed, that built the battery that failed, me as a pilot. Um, but it was on autonomous systems. I wasn't doing anything. So is it the is it is it DJI, the drone supplier that that that, that is liable? What happens if I run that drone all the way into the air and bring down a seven forty seven? Um, uh, you know, I can easily bypass the geofencing that that prevents drones from flying um, in uh, aircraft flight paths. It, you know, all of these things are are, are like literally um, life dependent. Yet. Uh, the bar to entry to, to engage in these systems is is so low because there was money to be made by bringing them out into the world. So what we do is try and, as world builders, you know, project and imagine these types of futures. Imagine, you know, the unintended consequences around, you know, drone surveillance tech or, um, you know, the how. Um, various parties could use a drone to, you know, collapse an airport for a week. We would we would project that in sites of fiction well before the tech is here and someone's actually doing it over um, uh, Stansted Airport, um, and you know, use those fictional projections as a means to start to prototype the legal frameworks that need to exist um, and prototype them before they become urgent and necessary. Fascinating. I'm I'm reminded of the the quote from uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was a lawyer amongst a, a few other things, who said the best way to predict the future is to create it. And what you're really talking about is creating or kind of netting out p- potential futures, a kind of multiverse of futures, and thereby allowing us to select the one that we like. It's really about trying to imagine this idea that, that the future is a verb, not a noun. The future doesn't rush over us like water. It's not something that we um, passively stumble into. It's something we all sh- actively shape and define. So how can we start to equip ourselves with sufficient knowledge to make the right decisions? Um, in a way, I use the analogy that the, you know, the future ahead of us is this dark and shadowed unknown landscape. And each of these speculative projects, these imaginary worlds, these fictions that we might create is like a torch beam shining a light into this dark landscape ahead of us. The more of these stories we tell and make and put into the world, the more of this landscape becomes illuminated and the easier it is to decide where we want to put our next step, the easier it is to decide and navigate how we move through this world. So it's not about trying to predict a singular future, but rather it's trying to prototype multiple versions of those futures to work back from that and to start to see and have a shared discussion around the sorts of futures that we might find preferable and start to scaffold and create an infrastructure that might help us to get there. I love that metaphor. And I I think obviously the you know, the, the the means by which you create those spotlights onto the future is really fiction, which is a, a vital mode to create those dialogues. I'm really curious, Liam, what have you discovered about using fiction as a mode of thought and a framework for engagement? Fiction is, is really an extraordinary shared language. It, it's always been how our culture shares and disseminates ideas. 
and you know it, it's 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 so powerful you know ever since we sit up um we're put in front of the tv consuming narrative we fall asleep in the pages of a novel um we can be in a dark in a dark theater and be moved to to tears or you know heard our sides laughing so hard it 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 really wraps us up um in uh, an extraordinary emotional environment and to create fictions that do nothing more than entertain or force to buy tickets or get bums on seats is an extraordinary waste of what is a really visceral and powerful um, medium for uh, disseminating content and ideas. So, you know, that's part of why I've moved to Los Angeles is to be a part of the Hollywood machine in a way and, and try and use the mediums of popular culture as vessels for critical ideas to encode within um, uh, these fictions that, that get seen by millions and millions of people around the world, um, uh, important ideas about how technologies are changing our lives and what the futures of our cities might look like. You know, we think of them as Trojan horses embedded within the mediums of popular culture. Um, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's really extraordinary. You know, I've, as an architect, you know, traditionally my medium is, is plans and sections. You know, and, and you study for five years, you know, architecture is a huge long degree, five, seven years sometimes to, to become fluent in that language of urban diagrams and um, architectural drawings. It's an exceptionally coded language. Yet if we really value um, the work that we do and the ideas that we talk about, we need to get much better at communicating to, to audiences those ideas. And, and the coded language of architectural drawings and the disciplinary language of architecture is wholly insufficient. So we create architecture for film. Um, we create urban propositions for film, um, not as a way, hopefully, to get new clients and ultimately get a commission to make a building, but we see those fictions as endpoints in and of themselves. Um, you know, an architectural book uh, at best has a print run of maybe 1,500 copies. It's pretty standard. Um, you know, I did a book called Machine Landscapes talking about some of these themes we've been going into, looking at um, the the the... the environments that are totally inhabited by machines as being the most critical um, cultural spaces of our age that had 20,000 uh, copies that went out into the world um, and that was extraordinary but at any given moment at 3 a.m on tv watching an infomercial for a thigh blaster might be a million people um, I made him uh, a short film called Tomorrow's Stories, thinking about the future of um, uh, Athen Athenian apartment blocks for Documenta, and it went really well. Documenta had a great, you know, audience traffic, and lots of people saw it. But then we used that same animation uh, for a music video for Forest Swords, uh, a music clip called Crow, and I think it now has 10 million views on YouTube. Um, again, it's, a, it's an audience that we can tap into through things like fiction, film, music videos, um, that is unlike anything that a designer might access otherwise. Um, and it's part of our duty, I think, to find formats that we can connect to audiences with that, that, that isn't kind of the rarefied spaces of a gallery or a museum or the um, you know the, the the echo chamber of a of a of a lecture theatre or a festival that I might perform at um, to get our work into the in front of people that um, it's really valuable for requires playing with the mediums of fiction. It really has been incredible to watch some of the the kind of uh, work you've created exploding in terms of audience size. But I'd really like to talk a bit about Unknown Fields. So that's the nomadic uh, research studio that you co-founded that travels on expeditions to chronicle the emerging conditions of new technologies. Can you talk a little bit about the business and your mission? Sure. So we've been talking a lot about you know one aspect of my work, which is uh, speculation, speculative architecture, projecting narratives of the future. But the other part of my work is a documentary practice called Unknown Fields that I run out of London with another architect called Kate Davies, which is about engaging with the present moment. So even if I'm, you know, talking about, um, you know, the implications of drone technologies or autonomous vehicles or AI governance in cities, 
all of these speculations actually begin in the sort of work that Unknown Fields does, a deep engagement in the landscapes and environments of the present. Um, so Unknown Fields goes out into the world and um, documents uh, the weak signals of possible futures. Um, there's a great quote that's now almost a cliche in the context of futures in sci-fi from the author William Gibson, the, the author of Neuromancer, um, the book where the, the term cyberspace first appears. He says that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And we take that exceptionally literally. What that would mean is that you know, it's possible to get on a plane or a boat or a train and to travel out into the world and inhabit a pocket of this future. Um, to document it um, and then to report back to, to, to audiences and to a world that, that, that hasn't realized it yet. Um, and that's kind of what we do. You know, we would go to the sites where, you know, at the moment, climate change we think of as being something of our future, something that might happen to our kids. Um, but unknown fields would get on a plane, go to Alaska and visit a local indigenous community who's having to move their village because the, the coastline that they have created that village on for 100 years is now melting into the sea because of climate change and, and you know, their attachment to place, their relationship to coastline and to hunting grounds is fundamentally already shifted. The whale migration patterns has changed and their entire lifeline and livelihood connected through that environment um, is collapsing. Um, and we would go and, and, and listen to them and try and capture their stories. Um, we might travel, um, like as Unknown Fields did for a project called Breast Milk of Volcano, to the Lithium Triangle, which is a you know, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina, a site of 90% of the world's lithium. Um, uh, because Elon Musk, in um, you know, presenting his new Tesla battery, which was hailed as one of the most significant tech keynotes since Steve Jobs launched the iPod, um, presented this vision of a green energy future where everything will be powered by solar energy in the next 20 years, um, relying on you know, Tesla battery technology, um, the fundamental ingredients of which is lithium. In that tech keynote, he only gave very partial um, reference to, to, to where they might get their lithium from. Um, in reality, for this future to come true, Elon Musk must literally buy Bolivia um, and evolve it as a new Dubai. So we would get on a plane and go to, to, to Bolivia and to look at this landscape where all this lithium is stored because this is a landscape of the future. This is literally ground zero for our electric energy. Um, and we would start to meet the people there. What are the indigenous cultures that, that, that tell stories about this landscape, that live on this landscape, that rely on this landscape? What are the ecologies and, and the, the environments that, that, that contain this landscape? Um, and it contained within it, um, no, this is, uh, this is really our future in the present tense. And we're trying to document that condition and, and talk about the stories that go on there before it's too late, um, before Elon Musk gets in there and digs the entire thing up and ships it to Nevada. So Unknown Fields makes documentaries about um, the future that's already here. And then in my own practice here in LA, I project those weak signals and, and narratives into futures, prototype them, play them out as new scenarios um, and visualize the world they might set in motion. I can only imagine the research process must be really significant for this type of work. How do you go about finding the stories that you want to tell? Yeah, we're, we're, what we're trying to do is capture the zeitgeist. Right, like we did uh, with Unknown Fields, we did a project called um, uh, Rare Earthenware, which was tracing the supply chains of our technology all the way from the Apple Store on on, a, on the high street, through the shipping yards, uh, mega container ships, um, wholesale distribution sites, the factory floors, the mineral refinery landscapes, and ultimately the holes in the ground from which these technologies begin their lives. And we kind of trace that journey in reverse. And we did so at a moment when Apple became the largest and most profitable com company in human history. Um, 
where does that extraordinary economy come from? What are the systems that bring the, those products into the world? Um, everyone was talking about Apple. Everyone was talking about the iPhone. We started to see the glimmers of discussions of Foxconn and suicide nets and deformities from the the the, the, the chemical used to polish glass screens. They were just starting to emerge at the time, um, and it was just through hearsay and rumor and. Um, uh, you know, you know, uh, some extraordinary undercover journalism that you were saying to reveal those stories. So we got again on a on a plane, a boat, um, a train, a van, and we literally mapped that entire supply chain. Um, uh, you know, as I said, the, the lithium project came about um, when everyone was getting super excited about um, Tesla battery technology that was leaving the electric vehicle and going into our homes. And they were inventing you know, the solar panel roof tile um, and telling this whole narrative about, about you know, in, commas, in, in quotes, green energy um, uh, without really talking about the other kinds of sacrifices we would make um, in order to deliver that kind of future. So we went to the lithium triangle. Um, we just recently did a project around um, fast fashion supply chain. And we did that at a moment when for a, for a brief period in time, um, the head of Inditex, which is a massive fashion conglomerate, became the richest person in the world. You know, usurped um, uh, Bill Gates and um, the head of Amazon and became the richest person in the world. And Inditex is a company that you, for the most part, most people have never heard of. Um, everyone's heard of Amazon. Everyone's heard of Microsoft. What the hell is Inditex? Inditex is the umbrella corporation for H&M, Zara, like all the fashion brands of, 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 of the high street, the fast fashion brands of our high street. Um, so we went and kind of looked through the supply chain of Zara. Basically, we went to the um, to the textile suppliers in India and Bangladesh to try and undercover how this extraordinary wealth is generated, and and made a project called Unraveled, which was a film um, set um, in the fast fashion supply chain, trying to make that story explicit, so that when you walk in and buy a three dollar t shirt at Zara, you start to understand the implications of what that means for a cotton farmer, all the way back in uh, the landscapes of India. Um, you start to imagine the water footprint when you, you know, throw away a, a, a dress because the fashion color of the season has changed. You know, we, we flew a drone over the, the illegal dumping of, of, of dyes, colored fashion dyes into the Ganges River. Um, uh, where you know the, the banks of the river are, are dyed with the, the color of the season, poisoning the banks um, and killing what is a, a lifeline, both spiritually and um, uh, physically, for for communities. So we try and you know find a story that 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 really connects with people in the present moment, and then start to um, narrate that. I'd like to I'd like to pick up on the point you made about the fact that climate change is, is already here in, in some cases. I actually had a fascinating dinner that I attended um, at the Royal Geographical Society here in London. Quite randomly, I was invited by the founder of an initiative called Necton. I don't know if you've heard of that, but they're, they're, it's basically they're working on behalf of um, kind of ocean oceans kind of uh, countries uh, to protect basically you know they want to protect 30 percent of um the the oceans basically by 2030 so a, a high aspiration it's a fascinating project but i was over dinner sitting with the head of communications uh with the seychelles government and you know seychelles is actually facing an existential threat because of climate change and simultaneously i find myself often having conversations around the fact we're doomed mixed up with well, no, actually over the next 10 years, we're going to go through a kind of renaissance where we're going to rethink everything. So really, I've got two questions for you. You know, how do you feel on a day-to-day -day basis if that's if that's something you can answer about the future? You know, are you, are you an optimist or, you know, is it kind of doom? But also, I'm really curious about how social, political and cultural factors are really shaping your work. Do you have to in a way, extrapolate yourself from the current paradigm to enable a greater sense of imagining? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I guess I would describe myself as an, uh, I don't know, an, an optimistic realist. Um, 
you know, I, I think the sorts of narratives that we normally associate with our futures, things like, um, you know, you know, utopias or dystopias, these sort of binary opposites are extraordinarily problematic. Um, I'm interested in kind of, you know, real and messy futures that are that are ambiguous, that are somewhere in between, that are that are equal parts utopia and dystopia at the same time. Um, you know, typically our visions of the future fall into those camps. You know, it's either cyberpunk dystopias, um, mega corporations run wild, um, uh, dictatorship governments um, uh, forcing control, and then you know, I understand why that works in the, in in a place like this where I am Hollywood because it it creates the scene for a hero's narrative you know a singular white male generally to rise up against the mega corporation and take it down you know it makes for a great story um you know the Joseph Campbell's monomyth plays well in dystopias it's it's hard to tell stories in a future where everything's kind of great <laughs> where's the conflict but where's the narrative opportunity um uh, so yeah, we're, we're, we're faced with these extraordinary cyberpunk dystopias, or it's the opposite. It's, it's techno solutionism. It's it's designers or or technologists like, hey, I've invented this new thing, and it's going to solve everything for us. It's going to make our lives better. Let's invest in it. Let's go. Let's bring it out into the world. And again, they're they're just as problematic. They're generally kind of um, you know again very white, very Western centric visions of a future singularly built around this new technology that's, that's, that's going to change our lives. They don't talk about the unintended consequences of these systems. They don't talk about the messiness that surrounds technology and, and the multiple narratives that it generates. Um, these futures are just as um, singular in their vision. Um, they just repeat the colonialist project, um, uh, just like the dystopias do. But really, like, you know, what we try and think about is that no technology is a solution to any of the problems we've created. Um, uh, technology ex just exaggerates and extends the problems that we already have. Um, it, it, they become extensions of ourselves, filled with our own contradictions, failed frailties, um, quirks and charms. And we try and present that complicated view of a future. Um, uh, one that, you know, drone technologies can do extraordinary things. They can deliver vaccines. They can uh, deliver me a package um, faster than I ever thought possible. Um, they can also be used to spy in the window of a 14-year-old girl changing. They can also be used to um, drop bombs or to surveil us um, without us realizing. Um, any future is really going to be both and, and neither of those things. It's, it's going to be um, all of that stuff wrapped up into one. So that's what I mean by kind of, uh, you know, an optimistic realist. I, I do think that um, there's, there's hope and that we can change the, 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 the crises we've set in motion. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there's any magic bullet that's going to help us to do it. I don't think that, um, uh, you know, if we make the right decisions, we're going to usher in some kind of perfect, flawless utopia. Um, uh, I think it's always going to be messy. Um, and that is both interesting and scary. Um, I'm interested in telling stories about futures that, that, uh, that, that don't normally get told in Hollywood, um, about communities and cultures and subcultures, um, about places um, that, that don't normally you know, fit that, that Hollywood narrative. Um, I think all those stories are really valuable because they're probably um, more accurate than, than, than the other futures that we, that we more generally share in, in popular media. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily asking you a question about, you know, um, yeah, whether I see the world through rose-colored lenses or not. Um, but it's, I think, how we act to make um, the worlds that we do um, is is to try and see them in that in that really complex way. And, and in a way, that's also why fiction as a tool is really useful because it it, it uh, you know somehow stories allow us to cut through really complex subject matters in a way that just, just analyzing the data doesn't. Um, just to expand on that point a little bit, you know, you mentioned climate change and, and in a way we, we all know climate change is upon us. 
Um, you know, these are truths that are sort of hiding in plain sight. We all understand the the data, the the bar chart with the little red line for parts carbon parts per million, the little red line for temperature that keeps on rising and rising and rising. Um, uh, you know, and and data visualization artists, graphic designers um, might spend a lot of time trying to visualize patterns in this data to try and help us to understand those systems, you know, really, really complex systems, um, uh, trying to make sense of the data so that we can connect to it. Um, our work, I would define not as data visualization, but rather I use the term data dramatization. Um, and that is to say that to really affect change, we need to take those complex data sets, not just visualize the patterns within them, but imbue them with emotion, imbue them with drama, because then we see ourselves in those systems. We, can, we become complicit in those systems. They affect us much more deeply. And that's the way that you start to you know, instigate change is, is by wrapping someone up in an emotive story as opposed to just like you know, throwing facts on us in a news broadcast um, to really kind of talk about um, what this means to people on a deeply personal and emotional level that's the power of fiction to present these complex ideas um, through. That's the power of fiction to, to make sense of really complex and nuanced um, uh, stories about our world. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Data dramatization. I love that phrase. We, so we as an agency, funnily enough, have spent many years uh, kind of honing our, our skill, I, I suppose, of data visualizations, o often in our spare time. So we, we were actually founded on a project essentially called the Light Calendars, which are um, data visualizations of the amount of light and dark as seen from London's perspective. And I suppose in doing that, what we were trying to do was also create an emotional connection, but more through the aesthetic of the the graph and I suppose remind people that we have this spectacular occurrence every day you know and you see it less in cities but certainly it happens where the sun rises and sets and it's a remarkable reminder of the magical world that we live in that you kind of just take for granted actually and I think through the light calendars what we're hoping to do is remind people of that spectacular occurrence but I suppose we build our graphs in a way that hopefully we entice people in and then allow them to sort of discover a narrative within the, the printed piece itself but data dramatization I, I really love that as an idea and I can understand how that can be profoundly emotionally connected with your audiences I'm really curious about how you think about your audiences in your work and how how do you find people respond to the work yeah it, it's it's funny we we try and as I said we try and put our futures into the world uh, in such a way that they connect to, to audiences that that normally don't go and see some of our shows or um, some of my lectures. Um, and we, those futures, as I mentioned, uh, you know, are, are, are kind of ambiguous. And what it does is actually bring out the, the sensibilities of the people who are watching them. You know, I'll, I'll do a performance or a lecture um, or, I'll, or I'll show a film at a festival and Generally, there'll be two types of questions from the audience. One will be, um, why are your visions of the future so dark and dystopian? But the same work, the same performance, the same film will also at the same time get a question, um, you know, do you really think things are going to work out that well? You know, you, you seem like an optimist about a lot of these technologies. Um, I'm much more of a pessimist. I think it's going to be much worse than what you say. So in a way, that to me is, is a, a measure of the success of the project because they force us to develop our own relationships to the work. Um, and, and if some people yeah, are inherently pessimistic, then they're going to see the work in one particular way. If someone's inherently optimistic about these systems, they're going to see it in another way. And um, that's why I think it's... Um, uh, I don't know, that, that's why I think it's valuable um, because it, it, it draws an audience into a conversation rather than just like presenting something to, to, to someone and saying, hey, this is what I reckon, what do you think? Um, it's to say, this is possible. Is this a future that you want to be a part of? Is this the future that you want to run away from? <laughs> um, 
uh, it's probably a future that might be coming in some form. Um, uh, what kind of action does that generate in you? What kind of emotion response does that generate in you? And in turn, um, uh, you know, what kind of decisions might you make about your life right now that you're either going to try and set that in motion or try and prevent it from happening? Um, so, as I said, futures and the production of futures is something that is a very active process and we just are trying to implicate as many people as possible in that process um, to, to get them talking about the futures they want to live in um, to either excite them or to scare them um, in many ways really what we do is put into the world counter narratives um, you know, again, a lot of these technologies that we talk about, they come into our world through particular singular world visions um, because, you know, there's there's a whole lot of value being wrapped up in them and they're being presented in particular ways um, through the interests of the people that are producing them. And our role is to try and talk about the, the alternative stories, the counter narratives, and to wrap audiences up in all of that complexity so that we can be more informed, we can be a more informed public. Um, and hopefully that's what we're trying to do in relationship yeah. to our audience. I think, so for our design audience, I think, Liam, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about what informs um, Unknown Field's design aesthetic and the visual language and how has it evolved over the years? Yeah, I mean, we, we've worked a lot with um, a collaborator in Eastern Control Centre. Uh, Unknown Fields have got a book series called Tales from the Dark Side of the City. Um, at the moment, it's six books and, and it's been kind of collected into a box set. Um, each book is a different expedition, a uh, different journey, a different landscape that we've traveled through and a different story that we uncovered in that landscape. And Nissan Control Center um, developed the aesthetic for that book. They developed the aesthetic for our... Um, our website, the branding for unknown fields, um, and you know we, we first met uh, Steve Smith, who is the Eastern Control Centre, when we did one of our very early journeys, which was to the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Um, this was the the 25th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, um, and we wanted to you know think about um, this idea of the world without us, the idea of post-human landscapes, um, what happens when humans have been evacuated from a site and, and nature moves back in, um, what happens you know, when we see the consequence of certain technologies, that of the, the dreams of, of atomic energy um, uh, all play out in this extraordinarily charged, tragic landscape. Um, and whenever we go on our journeys, we we look at who are the people that we want to you know, tell these stories with. Um, we invite filmmakers, artists, and in this case, graphic designers with us to, to explore these landscapes together and make work together. Um, and each of our journeys has been you know, an extraordinary collaborative process. And the um, Control Center came with us to Chernobyl, and that's where we started our, our collaboration, and we've been working together ever since. Um, and you know we, we embrace the the messiness of the the knees in aesthetic it's not clean lines and and slick digital prototyping it's rather you know handmade and collaged and messy it's you know you can almost see the 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 dirt of the landscapes we're in in a lot of that graphic language um uh, and that's what we were trying to play with. You know, we, we, we go out into the world, we collect all these stories, we collect all this content mediums, um, uh, little fragments of, 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 of objects and materials from these sites. And then, you know, through Neeson's sort of collaged aesthetic, um, they start to be woven into to a new story. Um, so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a really interesting um, relationship uh, across the years. And then my own work, um, you know, I define my aesthetic language really from the mediums of popular culture. Um, there's a lot of designers, you know, in the speculative design, critical design scene that spend a lot of energy trying to define a new aesthetic language for, a, for which we can talk about the future. Um, whereas what we do is sort of um, co-opt the language of science fiction, co-opt the language of, of comics and the language of Hollywood 
um, because that's a kind of a shorthand. You know, people know they're looking at something of the future if they see kind of high-end visual effects and and certain rendering techniques and certain aesthetics from concept design and concept art. We co-opt those aesthetics, but use them to tell different kinds of stories because we think that you know that's the power in a way of cliche is that. It's a shared language. Um, everyone can start to understand it, and and we use kind of you know these these aesthetics of the future as vehicles um, to disseminate ideas. So you know all the people that 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 work on and I collaborate with on my um, speculative projects. You know our most recent work, Planet City, for instance, um, a single city for the entire population of the Earth. Um, Everyone that I was collaborating with on that by day is working in the Hollywood machine. Um, they're visual effects artists making, you know, mega blockbusters. Um, they're costume designers um, working on all the sci-fi shows that we know and love. The costume designer for Planet City was Anne Crabtree, who um, uh, did the d- costume design for Handmaid's Tale and Westworld, the TV series. Um, so we use those aesthetic languages of um, uh, popular culture to to tell counter-narratives. I wanted to talk to you about notions of wilderness. So you created the book you mentioned, this fascinating book and now film Planet City, which explores the potential of extreme densification. So in in a speculative future where 10 billion people surrender to the rest of the planet or, or surrender the rest of the planet to a global wilderness, it's such a powerful work. What was the catalyst for the book? Yeah, I, basically, this project began in the, the early stages of the pandemic um, when, you know, all, all of our work, as I said, is about creating counter-narratives. And for the most part, narratives around technology were um, um, uh, really one-sidedly optimistic because, again, they're made by tech companies that are trying to sell us stuff. So our general role has been to complicate those visions, to create counter-narratives. Um but at the beginning of the pandemic, the dominant narratives around our futures were dystopian. The future was broken. <laughs> we didn't have a future for a year. Um, and um, as we started to live out a live action dystopia and look at everything that happened across that year, you know, um, uh, obviously the, the global pandemic, um, you know, the, the the horrors of systemic racism became more and more obvious. Um, the pandemic, you know, brought a lot of issues that were kind of latent behind the scenes to the floor, like, um, you know, massive um, income inequality, um, people that could um, afford to, to sit at home and not die, as opposed to people that had to go out and deliver us takeaway food. Um, so as we were living out this, uh, as I said, you know, dystopian film in real time, it became much more critical to develop a counter narrative to that, which was actually, you know, thinking about a shared vision of a future that we might all be able to buy into in some ways. So Planet City was born out of that moment, trying to create a, a vision of a, of a future where we could prototype the necessary lifestyle changes that might be required in the context of climate change to continue to sustain human life on the planet. Um, but they would be presented not as massive sacrifices, but we could present that as some kind of shared urban vision. And it could be aspirational. It could be joyful. Uh, it's still messy and, and complicated, as I've mentioned, but, but at the same time, um, it's culturally rich and diverse and active as an urban environment, not a kind of a post-apocalyptic post-climate um, Blade Runner universe where we've all escaped to the off-world colonies. Um, a few kind of, um, you know, slug farmers, police people and and androids left behind on Earth. Um, so that was the impetus for Planet City. And as a story, it began with um, Edward O. Wilson, a seminal biologist. His He has this vision for how to save our world called Half-Earth, which he describes as being a plausible and practical approach um, to um, continuing human life. Half-Earth implies that we restrict human development to 50% of the planet, leaving the other 50% to rewild, to return to nature. You know, we can do what we want with that 50%, but, but the other 50% 
we, un- we, we don't touch, we leave to recover. Um, and a lot of people spend time, because of, I mean, he's a bi- biologist, a lot of people spend time thinking about what happens to the 50% we, we, we leave alone. How do you rewild? How do you bring back nature? As an architect and urbanist, I'm really interested in the 50% that we can use because, you know, we currently live in a, already in a planet city, you know, a, a planetary scale city the size of the, the planet. I mean, we've urbanized every inch of our globe. Um, to shrink to 50% requires a massive effort of degrowth, a massive um, global migration of consolidation. Um, so we started to look at that, you know, what would it mean to design and to build the world of that 50% city? And as through that process, we started to look at what are the densest cities on earth right now? What are the densest cities in, our, in, in all of our existence? You know, Manila right now is the densest city on earth. Um, uh, but the densest piece of urban fabric we've ever constructed is Kowloon Walled City, um, uh, which was demolished in the late 80s, 90s in Hong Kong. Um, if you were to put the entire population of the earth in a city, the density of Kowloon Walled City, um, it would be this, a city that, that's half the metropolitan area of Tokyo. Um, at the density of Manila, the current densest city on earth, seven billion people can fit in a city the size of a single US state. Um, so rather than 50% Earth, what we're talking about is the potential for 0.02% Earth, leaving 99.8% of the planet to return to wilderness, to rewild. Um, you know, and you know, we've just been talking about Chernobyl, you know, another post-human landscape that has been allowed to require to rewild. What would it mean to to evacuate 99% of the planet? Um, and to just live in one city. And that was the thought experiment that the Planet City is built around. And it's not a proposal. It's not to say, hey, this is a great idea. Let's all build this city and move to it. But rather, you know, if we can get something like Planet City working at that extraordinary and provocative scale, surely the small scale consolidation and densification that we need to do in our more familiar cities like LA and London is totally possible. Um, because the big story we're trying to get into with Planet City, the big narrative we're trying to tell is that climate change is no longer a technological problem. All of the technologies and the systems required to dig us out of the hole we've created for ourselves are already here. They just lack the cultural and political investment required to make them happen and to roll them out at scale. So the front line of climate change is not technological, it's cultural. It's political, it's ideological, um, and Planet City is trying to operate in those terms. It's trying to present um, a cultural debate and discussion about you know, what are the necessary lifestyle changes that might be required? What are we willing to do in order to continue to live on Earth? Yeah. And and of course, the book is a collaborative work of multiple vo- voices and cultures supported by an international team of acclaimed environmentalists and scientists and theorists and advisors. You know, what was the creative process like on this project and what did you discover in the process of making it? I mean, if, if we're making a, a vision of the entire planet, um, uh, what we need to do is is bring voices from around that planet together in order to make it. Um, a lot of times when the design industry tackles problems of this scale, they do so through the outdated colonialist mythology of the of the genius designer, you know, the singular vision of, of I've, I've figured it out, I know what we can do, here's my vision for how the world can be different. Um, and it just repeats the problems of the past. You know, it's those, those same sentiments that got us into this situation in the first place. Um, what we do instead is um, trying to author a work through collaborative discussion. Um, so to make Planet City, it wasn't about me sitting in my studio in LA designing the city. Rather, it was about me kind of scaffolding a conversation. Um, I put together what I described as the City Council, um, which was a collection of scientists and technologists and science fiction authors, theorists, anthropologists from all over the world, 
um, we had scientists from Brazil and from Australia, from um, the Middle East, um, as well as UK and America. We had science fiction authors from the Caribbean, um, indigenous Australian authors, um, uh, Chinese sci-fi authors, um, all coming together to, to collectively author this city. Um, so the book, uh, Planet City, um, which is just out now, is a collection of non-fiction essays written by some of these science and technologists that are sort of making a case and an argument for why we need a provocation like Planet City now. They're sort of laying the groundwork for why this kind of vision is necessary and urgent. And um, a series of fiction texts, short stories written and set inside Planet City written by uh, people like Kim Stanley Robinson, you know, the seminal voice in climate fiction right now, um, written by um, uh, Chen Kui Fan, um, notable as uh, they describe as uh, Chinese, the, the Chinese William Gibson. <laughs> um, I mean, I think he has his own voice totally in his own right, but, um, uh, you know, he's telling future stories of China, which are really extraordinary. Chia Jia, um, another Chinese science fiction author, um, you know, her stories uh, are extraordinary. She, she, she based her Planet City text on um, uh, reimagining an experiment which is going on in the, in the Chinese landscape right now um, for Mars habitat, like a closed loop city um, uh, she was writing about because Planet City is a closed loop um, uh, city. You know, all the um, resources and systems required to sustain the city occur on its same footprint. Um, uh, we have Naylor Hopkinson, who's a, a Canadian uh, Caribbean uh, science fiction author. Um, we have Ryan Griffin, who's a, a, a writer and director um, from Australia, an Indigenous Australian um, creator who, who made the extraordinary TV series Clever Man, um, um, which is kind of the first of um, Aboriginal um, superhero story um, produced for ABC uh, in Australia. Um, and the list goes on, but but you know it's about trying to create a vision of a future, a sci-fi city um, that does the opposite to all the sci-fi cities we see in Hollywood, and includes the sorts of voices that those stories negate or ignore or deliberately exclude. Um, so yeah, it's a collaboration, and I think that's really where you can get the most interesting stories about our future is that they become uh, collectively authored, because in a way that's, like I said, how, how futures are really going to be coming into the world. Well, yeah, I mean, Planet City is a, is a phenomenal piece of, of work, and I just, I just really wanted to say thank you for all you do, Liam. Your work truly is radical and, and absolutely fascinating, and I've, I've really enjoyed listening um, to you talk about it today. In closing, I really just wanted to ask you one final question. What advice would you have for the creative community in terms of how they could better activate their own practice? I think something that's critical for us as creators and designers is to really understand the implications and the power of the work that we do and to be in charge of putting meaningful stories into the world. Um, but also to seeing us and the work that we make as being part of and wrapped up in much larger systems. You know, um, if you take something like a product designer, um, you know, we're, at, we're at a moment where the scale of product design and the scale of landscape design have really collapsed together, where the choices we might make designing something like a phone, you know, something, something the scale of uh, our hand or something that slides into our pocket, those choices echo across the other side of the planet in a hole in the ground or a factory floor. So there's, there's real power in thinking about you know, even the smallest design choice as being part of a planetary scaled system. Um, and to be mindful of that, what does it mean to reimagine the idea of the sites that we're designing for or the objects that we're designing, um, not as being singular things, being singular points on a map, singular objects on a desk, but being complicit in and, and productive of a planetary infrastructure and a planetary scaled network. Um, how can we imagine intervening in and redesigning that idea of an object or that idea of site, um, thinking about the supply chain that produces it, 
um, thinking about the supply chain that it in turn produces. Um, everything we make, um, the stories we tell are both products of culture, but also in turn produce culture. Um, and that's an extraordinary place to be. Um, you know, um, having that kind of awareness and unknown fields has been about kind of trying to map out that landscape in a way, really as a means to create a site and a condition through which to engage and intervene and to work. Um, uh, I own speculative projects have been trying to, to, to you know, operate within those sort of sites that, that unknown fields um, uh, visualizes and illustrates and narrates um, and try and project their implications. Um, so, you know, I think we can all do much better at um, um, just being self-aware um, uh, and, and um, yeah, trying to put into place and, and put into the world um, stories and narratives that are productive um, at the kinds of scales that we've been talking about throughout this whole discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liam. Fantastic. Thanks so much, David. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to our conversation today. Liam is a truly radical and hugely exciting individual. I hope you find his journey, work and perspective as inspiring as I do. Endless Vital Activity is brought to you by Accept and Proceed. Remember, creativity can reimagine our world.